Welcome to Netflix and Skill, where we go deep into our favorite movies and how they were made. Come join us. All right, well, we'll do a proper introduction um, in a bit, but uh, I am here uh, graciously taking over the the role of host from uh, Matt McGinnis, and I'll, I'll try to do it justice. But um, we're here, we're joined with J.P. Kelly, who's a lecturer here at uh, Royal Holloway. And um, what, do you want to introduce yourself, J.P.? I'm J.P. Kelly, <laughs> <laughs> lecturer here at Royal Holloway. <laughs> uh, I guess maybe one of the first things I should say is that I teach television and television theory. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'm a tiny bit out of my depth. <laughs> No, 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 not at all. I mean, the thing, the thing about Netflix and Skill, which is the screening series we do in addition to these podcasts, is they're for every, everyone and anyone. And um, we have people come from different departments. I think we have like an astrophysicist or something. She, you know, she's just coming to enjoy the screenings and offer her input. So even from a television background, you have very unique perspective and you're a, a movie buff and a film lover yourself. So tell us what has brought you here tonight. Um, Richard Linklater has yeah. brought me here tonight. Um, so, so the film we screened yesterday, Dazed and Confused, oh, yeah. um, it came out 1993 mm-hmm. in the US, and I think it came out slightly later elsewhere. But um, so around about 1996 or so is when I first kind of discovered and first watched that film. Um, and it was, as I was kind of telling the students yesterday, it was right at a point in my life where I was just kind of, I think I literally just finished my GCSEs, hadn't really done particularly well didn't really know where I was going to go in life, what I wanted to kind of do with my sort of future. Um, and so the film just kind of really spoke to me in that way that it's kind of, there's a there's that sort of sense of aimlessness and listlessness about the, that film that is also in, you know, I talked briefly yesterday about some of the other films you see that in, particularly like The Graduate, the way mm-hmm. uh, ben, mm-hmm. Ben's kind of just drifting on the lilo and it's kind of very sort of symbolic and whatnot. So, so that was my first encounter with Linklater, um, yeah, I was watching that film, and obviously at the time, only one other Linklater film existed, and that was Slacker. I think he he had made one before that. I've never seen it. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but I don't think it's something that's kind of very easy to find. Yeah, low budget, I yeah. think, and uh, not many big names in it or anything like that. No, and maybe maybe not a great film, perhaps, which is why it's not available. I don't know, but um, Slacker was available, and so once I had a taste of Days Confused, and I sort of became a bit obsessed with it. I mean, maybe we'll kind of come back to that in a moment. But um, Slacker was a film that existed, and I went out and I got that as well. And then I was like, oh, this is just so cool and so interesting, and just so different to anything else. He's got a, a voice that is very, I guess, easy to process and watch and listen to. Um, and I speak of his artistic voice and his kind of his filmmaking style. He's not trying to bombard the audience or subject you to anything too um, invasive. He, he wants you to enjoy the experience almost as if you're partaking in, in it. And I think, you know, Days and Confused is, is a primary experience where, you know, you feel perhaps as if you're one of the gang, you know, um, involved in, in, in the in the kind of nature of that teen angst. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true of, like, all of his films in a way. Maybe there's one or two exceptions of the more big-budget Hollywood things that he's done, but that notion, they're, they're almost like documentaries. Like, um, so I was, I was re-watching Before Sunrise and Before Sunset um, yesterday and the day before, and, you know, there, there are these shots that are just, like, really long. Like, there's, like, I think in the second one, there's, like, an 11-minute shot that with no edits really lets and it hold and, and hang, that kind doesn't of, he? yeah right so it's that whole sense of just 
being there and sort of feeling completely immersed. And so it's films of, because I'm, I'm a huge fan of documentary film as well, and it's almost like they're kind of bridging that sort of, they're these kind of really authentic representations of things that are clearly kind of fictional constructions, but equally they're just so believable and so immersive. And the sort of detail is just like sort of phenomenal in his films as well. And you, every time I was talking to you yesterday, every time you watch it, you kind of notice something new about it. And yeah, yeah. I think that's why they're so rewatchable as well. For those uh, audience members who maybe aren't familiar with the Before Sunset trilogy, uh, can you give us a little bit of information about that? Yeah. Okay. So they are a it's a trilogy of films um which so the first one actually was a film the first film he made after Days and confused was the first one called before sunrise i'm always i always struggle to remember the order of them but i think before sunrise <clears throat> um that came out in so it'd have been about 94 95 or something like that so it's quite soon mm-hmm, after Days mm-hmm. and confused and so the premise of it is these two people meet um, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy and they're 23 and they meet on a train. It's kind of chance encounter and it's this, I, don't, I won't go too much into it, give too much away because I think it's kind of great to watch with a sort of fresh eyes. Yeah. Um, but so the film's kind of about that chance encounter um, and then it kind of ends and it's a really interesting ending. And then nine years later, he comes back and he makes a second film and then, you know, it kind of picks up and it kind of continues on exploring that relationship. And then another nine years later, he, he finishes it with the third one um, before midnight. Maybe he's got plans for another one nine years from yeah. then. Yeah, who knows? We don't know. But but it's just, again, it's kind of like so, you know, it's such a kind of good example of his kind of style of filmmaking where he does all these things like playing around with time. You know, sometimes his films kind of compress time. Sometimes they kind of really expand time. But it just seems to be this kind of common theme and kind of common interest for him. So, and I guess those films in a way that I was thinking about this yesterday, that they're more about almost the ellipsis, the kind of gaps in between the films. Mm. That's mm. kind of like, that's the really interesting thing, like what's happened in those nine years. Wow, wow. Um, whereas something like Boyhood, you, it, for those of people that maybe don't know the film, is was um, kind of shows, it's 12 years, isn't it, where, where it kind of films the kind of growth of this young man into, you know, from his kind of like... I don't know how old he was at the beginning, if you recall. What was he, like 10, 11? Yeah, know, something like yeah that. he was quite young. And, he, and you know, so he's into his early 20s. But then with, it's within one film you see that journey. Mm-hmm. But the, the trilogy, the before trilogy, is kind of, you just kind of get these glimpses, these kind of like little moments. And they're not even like, they're, they're almost like filmed in real time as well. So, you know, the, the, the sort of narrative time of the film is quite sort of short. So it's really about those gaps, the kind of ellipses in the, between them. And also, what an experience for the actors to pick up projects, come back to them, because I know Linklater continues to film other projects, for instance, during Boyhood and in between the trilogy. And, you know, to come back, to kind of fall back into that uh, relationship with another actor, um, it's got to be it's got to be really kind of, you know, special and precious, um, to, especially when you're dealing with like romance films and things like that. Um, and ironically, there's, I think you mentioned this, there's even like a small little Easter egg tucked into my favorite Linklater film, which is Waking Life, where you do see the two characters in bed musing over something philosophical from the, the trilogy. So, you know, Linklater, he kind of sneaks these little things in. It doesn't feel out of place at all. And I had not seen the trilogy when I saw Waking Life, so I didn't even really catch it. But, um... I love how I love how he does these little things, and yeah. he's one of these artists who he's got a world, doesn't he? I mean, I love uh, the writer Stephen King, for instance, and he, you know all of his 
stories are all centered around this Dark Tower series, which I'm obsessed with. And they all the characters kind of cross in and out of his other books from that world. And and, and we see this happen with Linklater's film. So who are some other characters in Waking Life that pop up? I, I think you mentioned from Days and Confused, yeah? Yeah, so the Mitch character played by Wiley Wiggum. Yeah. I think, because, you know, I've sort of, we've talked before this about the fact that it's been a while since I've seen that film. Um, and so my memories of it are actually kind of quite vague. But I do recall there being a number of things. I've kind of looked into it after the fact, just out yeah, of interest, yeah, like, yeah. you know. And yeah, so, so Mitch, played by Wiley Wiggum, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Um, he is he is he kind of like the protagonist or the sort of lens through which the story's kind yeah, of told? Yeah, he's right? he, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't really put you too first person with him, but he just kind of finds himself waking up and you know, as the title says, into this strange uh, existence, which he believes to be a dream. And you know, if we've all had that moment where you think you've woken from a dream, but you really haven't. Um, that just repeatedly happens over and over. And he's, rather than getting closer to waking up, he seems to be getting farther away from it. And uh, it, it, it starts to get you those little tingles on the back of your neck a bit because it makes you question like, well, what is reality? What is life? And this is what Netflix and Skill is all about. So if you're listening, get ready because we're, we're diving in um, into the depth of you know, what really defines um, our reality in the dream world versus the real world. And interestingly, he uses an aesthetic which we talked about, which is rotoscoping. This is the first film he's done in On Waking Life. And it's a bit crude, um, but it's still, at the time, it was quite innovative. And throughout the film, if you notice subtly, the images start to distort more and more. So you start off feeling almost like, am I watching something with a kind of a poor filter on it? Or am I watching an animation? And then you kind of, almost at points, you're like, this has got to be real life, right? So it's the perfect medium to approach it in. Um, But then by the end of the film, things are blocky and distorted and blurred and things are changing shapes and it gets a bit trippy and psychedelic. And um, I think the film kind of bookends, both begins and ends with the character um, being pulled up into the sky from trying to just do some mundane task, which is like open the, 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 the handle of his car and he's just getting pulled up and up. And that's how the film starts. And then I think it ends in a similar way. And he's just flying over the people. And, you know, who among us hasn't had a good flying dream? Um, but I'm going on a bit of a tangent here. But what I wanted to say is that um, the things that Linklater explores in his films can range from very, very simple everyday interactions to really deep philosophical um, kind of explorations. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just to go back to that point about the sort of coherence between the style of that particular film and, you know, it, it wasn't like gratuitous. It wasn't like, oh, here, let's do something that's kind of different for no apparent reason. It clearly sort of fit with the theme and the kind of content of that. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, one thing I really like about him. And I think he does that regardless of like what genre he's working in. So like mm-hmm. obviously with the, the Before trilogy, it, there's no sort of excessively kind of edits and you know so, so he's kind of like taking a similar approach you know kind of really thinking about how does the kind of construction of the film kind of really reinforce the content of the film and, and yeah. there's that kind of parallel and even even in boyhood there's there must have been like you know when you think about how much kind of technology and kind of filming techniques change even just over a 12-year period oh yeah you know he, he must have had to meticulously plan from the very beginning how what kind of you know I don't know, you know, you're, you're the kind of tech, technical Well, the guy, format but... and the medium needs right. to match. And so in, in some respects, he either probably had to 
down downscale or 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 attempt to do some sort of a post effect that would match the quality because as you mentioned i mean i i, I wouldn't expect the digital cameras that they were using um to to be up to snuff from when, from the beginning of the film to the end interestingly boyhood was shot on film probably in anticipation of avoiding technical changes in the digital era so that was probably a, a smart uh, thing that they conceptualized beforehand um, to make sure that it wouldn't change in the look over time. And I wonder then, because you mentioned um, the other day that he's working on this other 20-year project. Yeah. And, and so what, That's is he a also very using good film question. for that? I guess we'll have to see what uh, what they decide to do with his latest project, which is a 20-year uh, musical adaptation, and um, see if they adopt a similar approach with uh, film versus digital. So it just goes to show the power of analog in some of these respects yeah they're still there people still like their old vinyl and yeah yeah just to come back around to one other film that he did with rotoscoping which holds up a lot better um in terms of dating wise is uh scanner darkly Mm -hmm. which is a philip k dick novel um and matt and i have definitely dropped uh him a little bit in previous sessions and uh that one is is really interesting to me uh again i think the, the the medium the format fits the story because it actually does have to do with uh, some, you know, drug experiences, and I think that again, you've got really noticeable actors in there. I think it's got Keanu Reeves and uh, Robert Downey Robert Jr. Downey Jr. Yeah. and Winona Ryder, I think, and you know, seeing them kind of characterized is amusing enough. But then they start talking to you, and their faces are distorting and readjusting, and you know, it really achieves something that you could never quite do, even with um, even with the best prosthetics and stuff like that. So, and that that's an interesting uh, story that gets you thinking um, as well. It's kind of very introspective. Mm. And, and Philip K. Dick, as an author, I mean, you, I don't know, like I can't say this is gospel truth, but from what I've read or what I understand, he when his kind of writing process was quite drug fueled, right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you heard this before? I don't know. But oh, yeah. Right. So he would like, I think, take sort of things like speed or whatever, and he would just like stay up and write, write, write. But then there was the kind of, obviously, the kind of consequence of particular drugs and combinations of drugs that he became kind of very paranoid about stuff. And that's that, a good that is point. obviously. That definitely shows in the film, right? His paranoia. And this, it's kind of a reoccurring. Uh, theme you know when you mean yeah if you've done too many drugs you you get paranoid with the government with being watched with you know there's kind of an uncomfortable scene where i think somebody's like seeing bugs all over the place and it's it makes you itch just just thinking about it watching it so um but yeah but it gets down to these very primal feelings and emotions and um yeah it's it's another interesting watch and can i just sort of also make a recommendation at this point please when we were kind of briefly discussing this during the screening yesterday, I mentioned there's this um, Amazon's first original animated series. Uh-huh, and just uh-huh. a disclaimer, legal disclaimer, I do not work for Amazon. Here, so this <laughs> isn't a promotion or anything. Right. But um, I watched it recently. It's called Undone. And it is, it's again, really another good example of the sort of medium really kind of matching and kind of being completely integral to the, you know, the sort of story and trying to kind of communicate that. Yeah. Um, so it's about kind of... Um, this person who's kind of I don't want to give too much away but you know suffering from hallucinations okay, and okay. and her world around her is kind of starting to kind of become undone as the title of the series suggests so it's a really great series so if, if people are listening and they're fans of you know um, Waking Life and Scanner Darkly that's a really really great series that I'd recommend 
Awesome. I'm, I'm going to check that out for sure. Um, okay, so moving on, because we're kind of going genre to genre to genre. Uh, so the films that utilize rotoscoping get into some heavy existential stuff, and they are a bit experimental. And in a way, um, that whole drug-induced psychological experience kind of can be brought back to where he started with Days and Confused. But before we go back there, let's talk a little bit about a one-off documentary-esque approach that Linklater took in his film Bernie, starring uh, Jack Black, who he's worked with before. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's another thing also, just before I get into talking about Bernie, but, you know, we when we talk about, like, auteur directors and whatnot, very often they have that um, sort of go-to person actor and you know and Linklater seems to have kind of assembled a kind of team of actors so you know you've got Ethan yep, Hawke yep, yep. Um, Jack Black has worked on at least <laughs> two I don't know maybe more yeah. um, but but that's just another interesting sort of side note anyway that's true I like that he keeps it within the family in a sense you yeah. know um, he's re- I think he's really big on promoting the actors who have been there with him from the start you know um, and, and I respect that and now he's you know raised to the level where yeah he's getting anybody he wants to work with right uh, yes, but as for Bernie, mm-hmm. that um, I had never, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Richard Linklater fan, but I'm also kind of marginally obsessed with IMDb ratings. And I've sort of set this level. If something doesn't get seven or above, Fair enough. I'm like, ah, it's a pretty time. good standard. You know, I think that's, parts, that's yeah. it's a good number to go for. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think Bernie maybe didn't get past that threshold, okay. which is why I never kind of got around to watching it. But then we had a conversation ages ago and you were saying, oh, no, it's a really great film. So I did. I watched it about a week ago. And it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy because <laughs> it sort of feels like a complete, simultaneously a complete work of fiction because you're like, this is just such a bizarre sort of event and kind of character. Mm-hmm. Um, but then equally, there's that kind of documentary element about it. And for a long time, you're kind of watching it. Like if you watch it without looking into it and reading about it, so you've got all these talking heads in the film, okay? Um, and they are kind of being interviewed about this one kind of key character, Bernie, played by Jack Black, who is um, an eccentric kind of a person um, and kind of finds himself in a kind of interesting kind of strange relationship with an older woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but the film's kind of constantly intercut with these talking heads and kind of like reminiscent of, um, you know, like the sort of mockumentary genre of the you know spinal tap and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the sort of subsequent films that they made but i think best in show was another one yeah those yeah, filmmakers yeah. so it had that sort of like vibe about it so i was watching it thinking okay even these talking heads are actors you know and then whatever and then i was so i watched the film and thought okay that's the whole thing is kind of quite interesting and crazy um and then i was kind of reading you know as you often do reading the trivia and then discovered that like sort of around about half of them or more yeah were actual real people that knew this guy, Bernie, um, which just kind of added, you know, again, just it's so sort of when you think about it in relation to like Linklater as a filmmaker, it just makes perfect sense because he's kind of really interested in kind of authenticity and um, kind of immersing people into the kind of world. So so it makes sense for him to kind of find these people and talk to them and include their voices and not sort of channel it through an actor's Yeah, in a way, Linklater is almost like a new age pioneer of cinema verite, you know, would would you say? I mean, he's, I mentioned in the, in the last, uh, at the screening, I mentioned, I ended it with uh, a mention to John Cassavetes, who believes very much in the performance of the actors and letting their faces tell the story and not doing a whole bunch of complicated camera movements. And, you know, Linklater is, is great at that. I, you mentioned a, like, 10-minute shot in um, Before Sunset or one, one, of the, one, of the, one of those films. 
And, uh, and in Bernie, I think, yeah, he's very happy to just set up the camera, let the actors do their thing. There's, there's some very comedic elements. Mm. And traditionally, you know, going back to Chaplin, it's like, you know, let set, the, set up the camera and let the actors perform for you. And J Jack Black is just such an animated character. We see it in probably his uh, Linklater's largest grossing film, which I think was School of Rock yeah. and has now spawned its own musical and television production, series. Television series. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, Nickelodeon, like it's a children's TV series. Oh yes! Right. Oh my gosh, that's right. I I, I can't believe I forgot. I mean, I, I saw that briefly, um, and you know, in that one, Jack Black is just totally at, at you know at his element, just having fun, being basically tenacious D yeah. um, incarnate, and um, and we all have fun with that. But when you see Jack Black in a serious role, um, and then see him holding that seriousness for so long until. There's a moment in Bernie where he almost like snaps and turns back into Jack Black. It not only makes you respect him as an actor, but it was such a, a great buildup to get to that moment where he's just kind of like, listen, ma'am, you know, and, and you see it finally come through and, and you know, it was like the, the payoff is worth it. And you kind of understand uh, maybe how that real life incident occurred um, when you shit, when you show it, when you see it that intimately. Yeah. I mean, his performance is definitely incredible in that film and, I think because people sort of just associate him with this kind of like comic sort of physical kind yep. of comedian yep. buffoon that falls over and, <laughs> and he's also very good at singing and whatnot. Yeah. But yeah, he can he can really act. And and like I think a lot of the reviews when I was kind of after I'd seen the film and I was kind of interested in reading more about it, um, you know, everyone was just kind of praising his performance in it as well. But then I think the sort of other issue and something you were kind of touching on there is that he often just lets the camera roll i think and lets these people i think he trusts in his actors yeah definitely um, and with days and confused which is kind of the reason we're here talking yep, right let's bring it back um, let's bring it back to that um you know he he had he's spoken about you know how that film you know how he kind of worked with the actors um and and that he put them in kind of like he sort of put them in groups to, and they kind of lived together for a bit i think and, and you were saying he made soundtracks for them yeah, yeah individual right. characters yeah so so he mixtapes um, and stuff yeah like mixtapes so like this particular character would like i think he mentions like the ramones at one point maybe it was mitch i think he said would have liked that and um you know maybe some of the others the louder brash ones might be more into kiss you know or you know whatever the sort of um, identities he wanted to create through the music but it's those little sort of touches and the kind of stuff that's going on behind the scenes that I think are kind of really then come through on camera and and you know I also I mean I mentioned when I was introducing the film um, yesterday that for me it's it was quite reminiscent and maybe he knew this or kind of learned something about this but of um, The Big Kill by Lawrence Kasdan yeah, which yeah. is an incredible film um, because again, it, it's really you can say it's Linklaterish because Linklater came later, right? But <laughs> um, but it's it sort of really like Linklater's works in that it's just this kind of really close, intimate study of this group of people. Mm -hmm. But again, um, Kazdan got them all together and they lived together and they were kind of working together. And you know, you know what you've just made me think of, and I and I mean this in the best light possible. Like a lot of Linklater films, almost feel like the high art version of a reality TV show. Does that, yeah. does that, I hope that doesn't sound insulting no, no, no. Or, or pretentious. No, that makes perfect sense. You know? Yeah. Um, because you're really getting to see the intimate characters. And sometimes, yeah, they come off a bit crude and, you know, just in your face. But then you see them in the, in the private moments, in the vulnerable moments as well. And um, Days and Confused shows a lot of different perspectives. 
And you don't just get the jocks, you know, you get all the little cliques, you get the intellectuals, the kind of philosophic thinkers, the young coming of age um, teens that are you know, taking their rites of passage into manhood and womanhood. And, um, and you kind of get to pick who you who you associate and ascribe to, which is kind of, I guess, in a sense, what reality television is trying to do it's trying to that's present true you. they always have different characters don't they yeah he's trying to present you with a range of um kind of identities and you know a good reality series should maybe do that let's say maybe they don't do that anymore they're a bit more you know like i think back to big brother and the kind of early days of that the kind of whole concept was that they would have a range of different you know um genders ethnicities yeah um ages sexual identities and so forth but yeah I mean, I, I can't say much. I haven't seen like Love Island, for example, but they all kind of look of a particular demographic, let's say, and maybe there isn't as much diversity today. Maybe we're going off on a whole tangent here <laughs> about something else. But I think just to go back to your point that um, Linklater's films are kind of like the high art form of reality TV. I think that's, that makes sense. It's like, in a weird way, sort of what reality TV could aspire to, to become more like Linklater. Yeah, yeah. Um because I think there is a fascination, and Linklater does tend to show what he knows, which is what they always say, right? What you know, and and he shows American culture, specifically a lot of uh, you know the, the the deep South, you know, where where I'm from, Texas. And um, if we could jump, kind of hop, skip over to Boyhood, uh, that that film really resonates with me because a lot of the scenes that happen and play out there. You know, I, I, you know, you said you took a, a pilgrimage to, to all your favorite spots from Days and Confused, yeah, right. yeah, yes, so, yes. I mean, I, it was quite a disappointing pilgrimage, I have to be honest, <laughs> right? Because obviously, that was filmed in, it, I mean, like it comes out in '93, so maybe it was filmed early '93 or '92, and I didn't, I was there in maybe it's 2010, and um, actually, like I, I was really interested in going to where the moon party, moon tower party was, oh, yeah, and yeah, I went yeah. there and I found where it was, and it was just like a kind of bog standard recreational. Was there a moon tower? There was no moon tower. No. No. There was just like a kid's slide and a climbing frame. And it was, even as far as parks go, it was quite underwhelming. It's still impressive that you found the location, though. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't think, I think it was maybe in like IMDb trivia or somewhere I kind of found that. Okay. But then actually, when I was there, um, I'd also just recently, I mean, because I quite like um, Robert Rodriguez as a filmmaker too. Oh, yeah. He's he's from Austin, isn't he, I think? Yeah, I think so. Connections to it. And so he had made. Um, with um, Quentin Tarantino made the Grindhouse double oh, bill yeah. Oh, yeah. and a lot of the filming locations are there so the, in Tarantino's film Death Proof um, they go to the Texas Chili Parlor and that's an actual kind of place okay, there so I actually okay. went in there and it was all really exciting and so yeah so I managed to kind of go on this pilgrimage for Daisy Confused but ended up trying to find several other kind of um, places that I knew of and from films so it was, it was fun well I'm glad to hear that you know Texas is is a visitable place um, for, for the rest of the world um Proud, proud of, proud of my home state, and um, yeah. So Linklater was born in Texas, studied in um, Austin. So Linklater founded the Austin Film Society in 1985, um, together with his frequent collaborator Lee Daniel, and uh, so that's that's a pretty cool legacy to leave behind. I mean, I almost went out and studied in Austin, and I had a lot of friends who did. I ended up going to LA instead, but um, such a cool happening place. Um, and uh, a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. They've got some great film festivals, uh, South by Southwest and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And uh, so so back to boyhood, you know, seeing those places from my childhood, you know, uh, come to life through through with a young, you know, the young man growing up kind of hits a nerve. And the music that he plays along with it is really appropriate for the time. And if I could choose one band, it's kind of used in the reel that 
um, that, that, that shows all of Linklater's works, I would probably say like Arcade Fire really it timelessly illustrates the, the, the feeling. You know, they have a whole album that's uh, called The Suburbs, and Linklater's all about suburban life. And this is something that is very American because there's just so much space that, you know, you get these suburban sprawls where plots of land come up with just a lot of uh, similar style houses and building, you know, streets and it's all connected, but there's nothing out there. Mm. It's just houses. And, you know, you kind of live in these little cul-de-sacs, which are just little dead end roundabouts, if you will. Um, and, you know, you meet out there with your friends. And I think Linkletter is trying to voice the same thing that Arcade Fire is trying to voice because they actually lived... Um, uh, the, the lead singer from Arcade Fire lived in Houston for a period of his life. And there, there's there's a feeling out there for sure that's hard to capture. But somehow Linklater puts it on the map and puts it on display. And, and I think that there's justly so like an, an, an interest and a fascination in what it's like to grow up in the suburbs of, of Texas or Houston. Yeah. Um, and bringing up Arcade Fire there, obviously the you know, the importance of music. I don't think we've talked about Yes, let's get music, into that because right? it's played such a role in Daisy Confused, so take it away. Well, I mean, you know, all I would sort of say um, about Daisy Confused is, I don't know the exact facts here, right, but it was something along the lines of Linklater kind of, it, it was so important to him that he had like kind of huge well-known songs from that era and that the film still had quite a modest budget um, and in order to kind of get them, he had to kind of essentially surrender more of his kind of like whatever he would get a percentage of the film's gross or whatever he kind of essentially gave away that film in order to kind of make it the film that he wanted and i think i don't know how much truth there is in it but i've kind of read or heard that he's literally not made like one cent from that film because of his commitment to and his kind of recognition of the importance of music in the film so obviously the film has a range of different um songs from that period but it's you know without it you just couldn't imagine that, I mean, the film wouldn't be anything without that music. And and interestingly, you know, the title, Days and Confused, is obviously a reference to Led Zeppelin's song, and that's the one song he couldn't get. You know, <laughs> well, so. But it's still, I think it's an iconic title. Um, and it, it's interesting, you're right. I mean, the, the, the songs really set the tone of the film. And honestly, that's so true to form, to want your piece of art to be expressed perfectly over over caring about the money that you make because in a way that was his calling card film and by getting that out there he just kind of started a an avalanche of a cult following from that film and I, again i knew people growing up who lived and died by that film and dressed like matthew mcconaughey in that film and just had the whole mentality and attitude and you know you everything down to the secret handshakes and the just the mentality um you know i was i was not in that crowd kind of thankfully because, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, not to get too sad here, but in, in America, there is a problem in high schools with these, you know, I went to the largest high school in, in the state and probably in the nation, and people fall through the cracks, you know, they, they say no student left behind, but it's really not the case. Sorry to get a bit political here mm -hmm. about the education system in the US, but it's not great. And you have students, you know, young teens slipping out of class, skipping class, smoking, drinking, and, you know, here I am kind of sounding like a grandfather saying, well, it's not good because I know some of these people and they're still um, struggling to find their, their, their way in life. But at the same time, we were just talking about Arcade Fire and Linklater, and they're actually speaking to those people. Their work is, is exactly what those um, 
those people need to hear because they don't want to hear lectures from the older generation and from the teachers. They thought they had their own counterculture. And they're not necessarily burnouts. They just didn't fit into the system. And it's not a system that's designed uh, for, for different ways of thinking. It's kind of a system of putting people in boxes. So very fascinating to see, you know, you here as, as a doctor teaching, um, coming from that as an inspiration and taking it and being so positive with it. And I think that's the power yeah. of, of speaking to people from different stratas of society. I think that's interesting because I guess some people might read the film cynically and say like, oh, it's kind of glorifying people dropping out and sort of just being aimless and listless. But it's true. I was just utterly inspired by that film and then seeing his other films and then other films by other directors. Like I was sort of several years later, I was very obsessed with like Requiem for a Dream, Darren Aronofsky, yeah, yeah, yeah. just because it was just such a phenomenally kind of put together film. Um, and yep. so, so I mean, that's going to go off on the tangent. but No, that's of... a good tangent because we've covered <laughs> Aronofsky in Netflix and Skill. And ironically, you just you just put the nail on the head right there. These filmmakers are doing the things that maybe the older execs in the studio would frown upon and say, well, that's not good. But they did it anyway. They're kind of the punks, the rebels, the renegades of film. And by doing so and by releasing it, it's kind of like, well, it's too late now. It's out there. And then once it picks up the traction, you retroactively, the industry is forced to say to accept it and kind of say, OK, you know what? There is an audience for this. And they are the um, pioneers of punk, if you will. Yeah. I don't know. Just like punk cinema. Yeah. It. It's really cool, though, that they're able to make it not only uh, marketable, but just make it artistic as well. I mean, I guess you could also say that on the one hand, it's good. And people like Linklater kind of came at a moment in time where independent cinema and indie films were getting kind of getting big and people were starting to recognize their kind of potential yep. in, in yep. like in the mainstream. Um, but then, you know, you talked about how, like, say, a studio executive sees Data Confused, sees that actually it's made quite a bit of money, it's become this kind of cult film. Yeah, yeah. But then the sort of downside of that is they then might start to just churn out these kind of like really Well, generic... and you do see that happen. And in a way, we, 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 we took a poll and we asked people what were their generational films and some maybe less artistic than others. I think, you know, American Pie was mentioned. What was interesting was they, they mentioned... Um, like John Hughes films like Breakfast Club. Uh, yeah. So, you know, like actually films and, are like way beyond their sort of But those generation. get, you know, those those get into like some more vulnerable, deeper things. But you got to be careful because some films run the risk of glorifying and glamorizing uh, nudity, gratuitous drug use, you know, partying, but not actually opening it up to intellectual debate. Um Again, I don't mean to bash American Pie here. I mean, I'm American. I saw it as a teen growing up, but I never really associated with it. I didn't say to myself, that's my movie for my time. I had a film, uh, a friend of mine, I don't know if you know the film Girl Next Door. Yeah, yeah, um, I do. He took, my friend took this on as his film. Like, he, it was him, you know, and he just, he felt like that expressed him exactly how he wanted. But that's the idea. Um, and that film is almost like a coming of age kind of. It's Emil Hirsch, wasn't it? I think yes, it was I, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and it's a fun movie. Yeah. But, but the thing is, like, it's you got to be cautious because if you, as a viewer, because if you allow yourself to just be the product of what you're being marketed and advertised to, i.e., um, the latest and greatest teeny bopper yuppie film that's just doesn't have any substance and it's just about partying, sex, drugs, and you don't even have the rock and roll. And I don't know. But the point is, 
you might become susceptible and you, you kind of, uh, I'm sounding really cynical here. You kind of become a victim to the advertising of the zeitgeist and of the generation. And you're right. Everyone's trying to copy it. But with guys like Linklater, he wasn't out to make a film to try and suck people in and show them the, the, the good life. He was trying to just be objective about what his experience was. Yeah. Like and, essentially a documentary, but right. a, sort of in film form. And, you know, th- if you think back to like early documentary because of the kind of technological limitations of early documentary they were very often um there's a very famous one by humphrey jennings called i think when fires were started is the name of the film okay and it's it's about the kind of fire service in britain and so the film wasn't like literally following real firemen it was actors who were sort of recreating scenes and sequences and scenarios and whatever wow, that he, yeah. you know, researched. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the, the sort of early days of documentary, it was like recreation. So, you know, you've got to kind of ask that question of at what point is a film a work of fiction and what point is it a documentary? And is it just how we kind of perceive it? Because, you know, uh, just to take one other example, Rush, um, I don't know if you've seen that film. It's about the kind of, this, I think it's Nicky Lauda and the other guy, they're kind of, I think I'm thinking of the right film here. I hope yeah. I am. Anyway, but but there was a kind of lot of talk about that film. Or I mean, there's various other ones. We could talk about um, um, the Abraham Lincoln one, the Spielberg one, I think it was Spielberg that came yeah. out. And they're sort of like, there's this kind of intense discourse around these films of how authentic they are yeah. and that they are. Like, and so you're kind of like, well, if if that was made in Humphrey Jennings' time, that would be, people would understand that as a documentary. So so wow. maybe we could say really Days of Confused is actually a documentary in some respects. Absolutely. You know? I mean, you have it'd be a tough sell to a certain um, kind of stuffy audiences that wouldn't wouldn't want to say that 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 is a true time capsule of the film but we had someone use that exact phrase you know it's a time capsule of the era and another filmmaker you reminded me of and i love where this is going is um i don't know if you know Werner herzog yeah yeah, who's mostly a documentarian but also does um some narrative films but i i had the privilege of attending his rogue film uh school and it was epic sitting in there with him for a weekend and hearing about picking locks and all of these exciting adventures um but he also admits to directing his subjects in his documentaries. You know, they'll be giving the real-life rendition, and he'll say, okay, that was great. Can you try it like this? And I just yeah. think that's really fascinating because, again, you're steering away from the objective truth, and you're, you know, he'll say, can you, can you deliver it more emotionally? Can you, can you look off into the distance and ponder the meaning of life? Yeah. I don't know. He gives them these directions, and then because he's trying to craft an, craft an experience for the viewer— and um, his documentaries are fabulous. So yeah, I think there's a there's a kind of blurred line sometimes, isn't yeah. there, between some of these films that yeah. you, I mean, you can you know I often use this example of something that's totally antithetical to something like Days of Confused, but like an Avengers movie, no right. one no one would ever say, okay, that's got documentary elements to it or something. You know, it's just <laughs> it's just like wild and that's not real. Sort of, yeah, sorry to break <laughs> it to you, man. Sorry, oh. um, but yeah, but something like Days of Confused, when you sort of compare it to that, you could say, well, you know maybe you know documentary is not the right, right word to use but it's there's something that makes it different fly on the wall kind of yeah experience and now you've got me thinking about what is Linklater's primary objective because we're talking about like which films you should start with with Linklater and he has films that are like really easy to watch pop on almost you could even call them popcorn movies and then of course he delves in, into depth so let's do six degrees of separation six degrees of separation 
I'm going to start off. Oh, no, you start us off. Yeah, yeah, right? I'm, yeah so I'm going to pick, um, we'll start with the film that we were kind of has brought us here, Daisy Confused, and I'm going to go with uh, Matthew McConaughey because like his breakout role. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> okay, let's take Matthew McConaughey a little bit forward in his career when he's a young buck in Contact. Okay, Contact, uh, that starred Jodie Foster. Yes, yes, she's kind of the, the star of that film. And uh, yeah, all right. So Jodie Foster was also uh, played a very young role to flip it back in Taxi Driver, Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Is that right? Yeah. And thank you because you have uh, Scorsese. <laughs> yeah, you gave me the uh, yeah. So okay. I'll go with Martin Scorsese for the for the next link. All right. And Martin Scorsese also did a film that was kind of out of his normal catalog, but it's actually probably my favorite Scorsese film. It's like a three-hour epic, Gangs of New York, starring one of the greatest actors of the century, Daniel Day-Lewis. Okay, yeah. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis has done quite a few things. Um, so which one should I go? I'll go, well, actually, because we talked about it before, um, Abraham. I don't know if the film's called Abraham or Abraham Lincoln. It's just called, just Lincoln, called Lincoln, right? isn't it, right? Yeah. So, and Link- yeah, so we'll go with Lincoln. All right, so, yeah, so Spielberg directed Lincoln, and he also directed film... A little-known film called The Goonies. Goonies. Yeah. Never heard of it. What's that about? No, of course. <laughs> I know that one. Um, yeah, I watched that a lot. Kind as of well, from the past once. era as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, let's go with Sean Austin because he's been in quite a few things, so maybe that'll help us. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken, we can plug that character into Stranger Things. Oh, uh, yeah. Which Who, stars... Yeah. Winona Ryder. And Winona Ryder is in... In a Scanner Darkly. Scanner Darkly. And we made it back to Richard Linklater. All right. <laughs> there we go. We made it. That's probably the longest six degree separation we've done here. So cool. It's about eight or nine degrees, yeah. Yeah. Hey, man, that's the goal. So that's what it's all about, um, connecting everybody. So, all right. Um, that's our show. Do uh, we, we, we do you have anything else to add? Um, we don't want to keep you too much longer. No, just to say um, to anyone listening, really, you know, go and give Linklater a try if you don't if you're not familiar with his films. Um, we didn't really talk about um, the the spiritual sequel. Um, any um, was it? Everybody wants some. Yep, yep. So that that came out in 2016, which was kind of like this follow up in a way today's confused because it was it was a similar story or a similar kind of thing except instead of about the last day of high school it's about the first day of college um and it's also that kind of you know filmed over a short the narrative time is quite sort of compressed so if you like days and confused i think you'll probably like that film as well but he's just he's got so many diverse films and uh, you know he's just he's got he works in so many different genres that I think there's something for everyone, to be honest. And just to come back to you saying how he plays with time and compresses time, I mean, it's almost like Linklater is just jumping back and forth between projects. And what an exciting uh, thing to be able to do as a director uh, to, you know, just to come back and say, hey, let's just do something fun, a uh, spiritual sequel to Dazing and Confused. Then let's go back, do another romantic installation. Then let's keep working on boyhood along the way. Um, so, you know, he, he's really had his pick and uh, I, my hat goes off to him. Um, the last thing we'll end with is, can can you share your quote uh, from us with Linklater? Yeah. So so there's this, basically, after he makes Daisy Confused, he then, the next film he makes is the first of that before trilogy, so before Sunrise. And I mean, one of the things that is really interesting about that shift is like Daisy Confused is quite a sort of funny I wouldn't say juvenile, but, you know, like kind of that sort of a style. Um, and, and once you get like just the next film is really quite mature and yeah. 
it's just so different in so many ways, but also so brilliant. But in that film, um, very early on, there's a little piece of dialogue between um, Jesse and um, uh, Celine, the two um, characters, and Jesse's kind of talking about this idea he has for a TV show. Yeah. So this actually goes back to what we were talking about in reality TV yeah, and documentary. Yeah, yeah. And he says, like, I have this great idea for a kind of cable access um, show that would be... 365 days of the year it's broadcast and every day would be a different person and they're just they're kind of showing their everyday kind of parts of their life and she responds with you know I don't want to swear but she there's some expletives there she's like that'd be so boring um, <laughs> and he says something like oh I would have described it as the sort of um, poetry in the sort of mundane things in life or something you know something along those lines and and so it's, I think from a very early stage in his career um, Linklater was aware that that's the kind of thing he was interested in because his act, the characters in his actual films were kind of articulating this um, this kind of fascination he has with the beauty and ordinary everyday things. And I'm really glad you said that because he is the master of getting um, actors to confront that verisimilitude of describing what it is that they want to explore without sounding expositional and then almost calling themselves out for it and having a laugh with it or, or allowing it to go into a deep silence or, or kind of, you know, discussion. Um, and I'll complement that with a quote from Waking Life where um, a character asks, uh, what are you writing? And uh, the guy says, a novel. And she says, what's the story? And he says, there's no story. It's just people, gestures, moments, bits of rapture, fleeting emotions. In short, the greatest stories ever told. And she asks, are you in the story? And he says, I don't think so. But then I'm kind of reading it and then writing it. And the, just what that gets you to start thinking about, about, you know, existential stuff and is there a meaning to everything and is there a pre-written script to our own lives or are we writing it as we go? Um, I just, yeah. I think that sums a, up. It definitely sums up his work and his, his, I think, his approach to making films and maybe his view of the world in some ways yeah well this cool. has been very enlightening JP thanks for joining us um, thank you very much for having me because I had such a great time you know introducing the film yesterday and um, just uh, anytime I can talk about Link later <laughs> you know it's, it's time well spent basically so thanks for having me well thanks for sharing your passion and we look forward to catching up again in the future well, thanks Today's episode was written by Brandon Wade and J.P. Kelly, with thanks to Royal Holloway University London. Engineered and produced by Matthew McGuinness. Music by Vast, inspired by Philip K. Dick. Search Facebook for Vast Electronica, with an A at the end. Stay tuned for more.